The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to welcome the nominees that are before us today. We're going to consider four nominations. The Honorable Todd Chapman to be the U.S. Ambassador to uh, the Federative Republic of Brazil. Mr. John Hennessy Nealon to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Palau. Ms. Dorothy Shea to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Lebanese Republic. And Mr. Donald Wright to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Tanzania, uh, the United Republic of Tanzania. We have nominees here from different regions of the world, but each one of these is important. If you're confirmed, you're going to play a very important role in advancing our nation's foreign policy objectives and in protecting our national security interests and our values in these four countries. Uh, briefly, to touch on the four uh, nations uh, that uh, you've been nominated to serve in, with Brazil, it's a very important U.S. ally on both trade and on security. And the current government that's led by President Bolsonaro has worked to strengthen its ties with the U.S on a number of issues. That includes security cooperation. We've collaborated on drug trafficking, on arms trafficking, on cybercrime, money laundering, financial crimes, and on terrorism. And in July, the Trump administration designated Brazil as a major non-NATO ally, uh, which provides uh, privileged access to, US, to the US defense industry. It also includes increased military exchanges and exercises and training. And that only scratches the surface. And it's, so it's critical that we continue to strengthen US-Brazil trade relations as well as counterterrorism laws uh, to monitor foreign terrorists use, utilizing Brazil's airport uh, in this capital of Sao Paulo as a hub in, into the Americas. And Palau is a strategic location in the Western Pacific. It's especially vulnerable to Chinese pressure. In 2018, for example, Beijing banned its citizens from visiting Palau as tourists in an effort to pressure them to sever ties with Taiwan. They've remained strong, they've not succumbed to this bullying, and they should be applauded for that. Uh, Mr. Hennessy Neeland, I'm interested to hear how you plan to strengthen our relations with that nation and how you plan to push back against these Chinese efforts. Lebanon presents its own set of challenges, but also opportunities. The challenges are well known, an unstable security situation, an economy that's collapsing, and now this, this has led to mass protests, uh, as well as a nation that now hosts one of the largest refugee populations in the world. So Ms. Shave, you're confirmed you'll be heading there at an important moment in their history. And uh, as we see protesters that are crossing sectarian divides to demand an end to rampant corruption within the government, uh, it's our hope that Lebanon will implement critical reforms to pull itself out of this economic crisis. Meanwhile, Hezbollah, a strong ally of Iran and a US-designated terrorist organization, remains a threat to the security of that nation and to its internal stability. They also remain, of course, a regional threat, particularly to our ally Israel, and they are more capable than they've ever been from a military standpoint. So we will need to continue to work closely with Lebanon to bolster its ability to protect its borders, to advance regional stability and security, and to address all of the issues that are associated with hosting over one million refugees from Syria. Finally, but not least, is Tanzania, which has long been a US partner and is critical to regional stability in East Africa. Uh, however, we've seen a concerning decline in human rights and in the democratic space. And uh, we should raise these issues with the government as they risk hindering important economic, security, and development objectives. So, Mr. Wright, I look forward to hearing what your priorities will be confirmed and when it comes to countering Chinese influence and in supporting different development goals in the country. So, it, uh, again, I think the goal of all members of this committee is a U.S. that remains engaged globally, but in order to do that, we need ambassadors who are committed to faithfully implementing U.S. policy and fostering strong relationships in their host countries. So again, I want to thank you and your families for your commitment to our country, for your willingness to serve it, and now I recognize the ranking member. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. We, we do have a, a really impressive panel here today, 
representing all parts of the globe. So we, uh, we thank them. You have a lot in common. Uh, we have three career diplomats that are here, and we thank you for your years of service uh, to our country. We have one professional nominee who has served our nation very well in several capacities uh, and brings that type of public commitment uh, to uh, this nomination. So in all four cases, we have individuals have very impressive backgrounds, and we thank you very much for your willingness to continue to serve our nation. I also want to acknowledge the families that are here because it's a family sacrifice, uh, and we recognize that uh, you can't do this without a supportive family. So we thank all of you for your, for your willingness uh, to do this. I must say, I must point out in Shea's case, you bring another qualification here, being a Pearson Fellow to Senator, the former Senator Dick Luger. Um, we all respect the manner in which he went about making those selections, and uh, it's not an easy process, and uh, it was an incredible opportunity for you, but he's also, we've been told, praised very much your service as a Pearson Fellow. Uh, in all three cases, all four cases, um, as the chairman has pointed out, we have serious issues. We're dealing with countries that are important to the United States for different reasons. But in all cases, the way that we do development assistance needs to be targeted towards U.S. objectives. And how we go about doing this, we're looking at how we're going to modify development assistance to accomplish our goals. How can we better uh, target those funds? And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that. Environmental stewardship is going to be very important in all, the, all four of the countries we're talking about. In Palau, obviously, the, what's happening to that island is a, is a major concern uh, to its future existence in Brazil, the Amazon, uh, the rainforest. Uh, the fact that so much of the rainforest is, is in Brazil and that Brazil was on a path to really do great conservation work, which was, it's been dramatically changed by this current administration. How are we going to deal with those issues? So we have also promoting human rights, all four countries. And uh, I hope that you will go into how we are going to improve and increase human rights uh, in all of the countries uh, that, that are involved in today's hearing. In Lebanon, uh, we know it's been a challenge on governance. We know that Hezbollah presents a security challenge to the United States. We know that we have borders that need to be more secure as to how we're going to deal with those secure borders, preventing Iran from influencing the terrorist activities within Lebanon. Uh, but at the same time, there's legitimate protests within that country as to, as to the, the welfare of the people. They have to get their economy back on track. How do they do that in a way that doesn't create unrest among the citizens uh, as we look uh, to how we uh, achieve those ob objectives? Uh, in Tanzania, a country very important uh, to us, uh, in, 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 in Africa, uh, human rights, a major concern. Uh, this is a country that has been challenged on uh, good governance for a long time. Uh, how do we deal with those issues in, in that, that country? So, uh, Palau, I'll be interested as to how we are moving forward with the compact. This is a country that we have a really special relationship with, one that has been mutually beneficial, including the security of the island, as well as the United States security interest. Uh, as we look towards the, the uh, new plateau in the, uh, of 2025, how are we going to move forward in, in those countries? So, Mr. Chairman, we have uh, four different countries, but we have professional nominees, and we look forward to uh, a, a conversation 
as to how we can use the tools we have available in America to further our national security interests, both, both as, as it relates to counterterrorism, as it relates to environment, and as it relates to promoting American values of human rights. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to introduce the four nominees, and we're going to start with the opening statements from my right to left to your left to right. Uh, Mr. Chapman is a career member of the, of, the, of the Senior Foreign Service. He most recently served as the Ambassador to the Republic of Ecuador. Ms. Shea is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as the Deputy Chief of Mission of the United States Embassy in Cairo, Egypt. Mr. Wright uh, is a, uh, or Dr. Wright is a career member of the Senior Executive Service and is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health and Director of the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion at the Department of Health and Human Services. And Mr. Hennessy Neeland is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, currently serves as a political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Australia. Thank you again all for being here. We look forward to your opening statement. We'll begin with you, Mr. Chapman. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and honorable members of this committee. Thank you for this immense privilege of appearing before you today as the nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to the Federative Republic of Brazil. I am grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for the trust and confidence they have shown in me through this nomination. Firstly, I would like to recognize and honor my wonderful family. Words are simply insufficient to capture my love, admiration, and appreciation for my wife, Janetta, and her commitment to service wherever God has led us around the world. Love you, honey. I'm also grateful for our two sons, Joshua and Jason, the dynamic duo, and our amazing daughter-in-law, Brooke, for their constant love, support, and encouragement, all watching from Denver. As a family, we have shared in the adventures, the excitements, and the joys, and yes, sometimes the challenges of, life side, of the lifestyle and service that a foreign service career brings. And through it all, we have been richly blessed. I am proud to be a career member of the United States Foreign Service. During these 29 years, I have served five presidents on four continents in seven U.S. embassies. Most recently, I was U.S. Ambassador to Ecuador and participated in a most rewarding time of dynamic renewal in the U.S.-Ecuador bilateral relationship. Representing our great nation to other great nations is an undertaking I proudly embrace. If confirmed, this would be an opportunity to continue my long personal history with Brazil. In 1974, when just 11 years old, I moved with my family to Sao Paulo, and I completed junior high and senior high school there in Sao Paulo. I eventually would return to Brazil as Deputy Chief of Mission from 2011 to 2014. Thus, with this background, I am confident in the promise and opportunities which an ever closer U.S.-Brazil relationship can offer to our citizens and to the world. The United States and Brazil have the Western Hemisphere's largest economies, the largest militaries, populations, and territories. We share democratic values, a long history of cooperation, and an over $100 billion two-way trading relationship. Therefore, when President Trump and President Bolsonaro met in March this year, 
they set out an ambitious agenda for this relationship. In their joint statement, they committed, quote, to building a new partnership between their two countries focused on increasing prosperity, enhancing security, and promoting democracy, freedom, and national sovereignty. This is the agenda, and implementation is underway. Expanding commercial opportunities for our private sectors, facilitating travel both ways, promoting scientific and economic cooperation, and developing innovative ways to collaborate on the environment. Working together regionally as well, we share an interest in restoring democratic rule in Venezuela, supporting the democratic transition in Bolivia, and countering Cuban influence in the region. Indeed, the U.S.-Brazil partnership, already extensive and broad, is ripe for growth. If confirmed, I will protect the interests of the over 240,000 U.S. citizens who currently reside in Brazil and the over 500,000 citizens who visit Brazil each year. And if confirmed, I will be honored to lead the 1,400-plus Brazilian and American professionals who comprise Mission Brazil and who are working effectively to operationalize and develop this bilateral agenda. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of this committee, if confirmed, I commit to doing my very best to represent the very best of the United States to the people and government of Brazil. And if confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this distinguished committee to enhance the strong partnership between these two great democracies. I sincerely thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Anasinian. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the Committee on Foreign Relations, it is an honor and a privilege to appear before you. I am grateful for the confidence the President and Secretary Pompeo have placed in me as the nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Palau. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you to advance our nation's interests with respect to our bilateral relationship with Palau, a key partner of the United States in the Indo-Pacific region. From a young age, I've always known that I wanted to serve my country. Growing up abroad, I saw firsthand the importance of American leadership. My dad worked for a number of years overseas as a senior executive with Standard Oil of Indiana. As a student at Tufts University and later at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, in addition to my studies and playing on the varsity soccer team, I focused on passing the Foreign Service exam, and it has been an honor to serve as a Foreign Service officer over the past 30 years. My wife, Julie, is here with me today, and without her, I would not be before this committee. She has been by my side ever since we were graduate students together. She has done so much to support our family, including countless moves and giving up her own global career with AT&T so that I, we, could serve our country. Our two sons, Connor and Aiden, could not be with us today. They are both recent graduates and have found gainful employment, which greatly pleases their parents. <laughs> Connor has just completed a master's degree in international politics at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland and is a research service coordinator. Aidan graduated earlier this year with a BA in economics and government from William & Mary and is the team operations coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
I have sought throughout my career to represent the United States to the best of my ability and to embody the principles and values of this great nation. I recognize that while service is a personal commitment, it is very much a shared endeavor. I believe my background as a Chargé d'Affaires and Deputy Chief of Mission, as a Director at the National Security Council, and as a Foreign Policy Advisor to the U.S. military, demonstrates diplomatic experience and the capability to serve as a Chief of Mission. My work in the Pacific, currently as the Acting Deputy Chief of Mission, and previously as the Political Counselor at the U.S. Mission in Australia, and earlier in my career as the Political and Economic Section Chief in Suva, Fiji, exemplifies a substantive knowledge of the region that may be particularly helpful in leading the U.S. Embassy in Palau. The opportunity in particular to serve as the Foreign Policy Advisor alongside our U.S. Marines at Marfor Pak, first as part of the command team of General John Tulin and later with General David Berger, now the Commandant of the Marine Corps, has been particularly meaningful in my development as a Foreign Service Officer and a leader. Our military ties to Palau run deep and many citizens of Palau have served in the U.S. military. Their service is a reminder of our nation's enduring commitment to peace and security in a dynamic and critical part of the world. The relationship between Palau and the United States, forged in the field of battle, continues to be strong, as is the U.S. commitment to our compact of free association with Palau. Recognizing our unique relationship with Palau, we consult closely on foreign policy matters, and the U.S. has full responsibility and authority for security and defense matters. Palau also shares our core values, supporting democracy and human rights, and continues to maintain strong diplomatic ties with Taiwan. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with President Remengasau and his government to deepen and strengthen the ties between Palau and the United States. With a large and increasing number of U.S. government agencies engaged in projects in Palau, coordination and leadership of U.S. government initiatives will be a personal priority to ensure a whole-of-government approach to our mission and to ensure transparency and accountability for all our programs in Palau. I pledge to this committee to promote and to protect U.S. interests and our people in Palau to the best of my ability and to ensure the strongest possible relationship with Palau, such a key partner of the United States in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee for this opportunity to speak with you today and answer your questions. So far, this is a great panel. They've all come in under five minutes on their opening <laughs> statements. Phenomenal work. Speaks very well of your capabilities. All right, no pressure, Ms. Shane. I intend to maintain that track record, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Lebanon. I am grateful to President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo for putting me forward for this position. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you and your colleagues to advance U.S. interests in Lebanon and the region. With your permission, I'd like to submit my full statement for the record. I am grateful to be joined today by several members of my family whose love and support for me throughout my career has been critical to my resilience and my overall success. Excuse me for getting a little emotional about that. 
my sister Margaret Shea Burnham, and <laughs> my brothers Brandon and Steve, plus several of their nieces and nephews. And I would highlight Katie Burnham, who graduated from University of South Carolina yesterday and drove all night with her sister to get here today. I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia, just a few miles from here. And I was the youngest of six children. And I heard stories from my father, Brandon Shea, about his army service in World War II and afterwards in Paris as part of the Marshall Plan. My mother, Audrey Martin Shea's work, also took her overseas from time to time. Their stories, together with the curiosity that was sparked when my family hosted Japanese exchange students, spurred my interest in international relations. Little did I imagine that one day I would be sitting here before you in this chamber as an ambassadorial nominee. Can I have a Kleenex? <laughs> it is very humbling. I joined the Foreign Service 28 years ago, and every day of my public service has been an honor and privilege. I realized early on that key components of job satisfaction for me were that I continue to learn, to be challenged, and to contribute in some small way, however good, however small, to the greater good. And as long as those criteria were met, I would stick it out in this peripatetic career. And sure enough, every job I have had in the Foreign Service has met those criteria in spades. In a couple of these jobs, I have had the opportunity to travel to Lebanon, including as a Pearson Fellow with this very committee. It was a great honor to help cover Middle East issues for the then ranking member, Richard Luger, a true statesman. I am lucky to count as friends those who were colleagues from my time with the committee, some of whom are here today. Turning to Lebanon, I'd like to address the broad-based protests that began on October 17th and continue today. In a country known for its multi-religious character, these protests have been unprecedented in their truly national nature with involvement of Lebanese citizens across the nation, across sects, and across socioeconomic levels. Demonstrators have been calling for an end to the economic mismanagement and endemic corruption that have plagued Lebanon for decades. The United States strongly supports the right of Lebanon's citizens to protest peacefully and has called for their continued protection. The message from the protesters is loud and clear. The Lebanese people have had enough of their leaders prospering while the rest of the country struggles under crushing debt and in the absence of the most basic services, including trash removal, electricity, clean water. Their demands for a government committed to enacting far-reaching reforms led to the resignation of the cabinet on October 29th. But unfortunately, Lebanon's political leadership has failed to act expeditiously to respond to those calls for reform, and the government remains in caretaker status today. Until Lebanon's political leaders embrace the need for real and lasting reform, no government can succeed. But if, if leaders do embrace change, we stand ready to work with the government and the people to rebuild Lebanon's shattered economy. Lebanon's Economic difficulties are profound and it will not be easy to enact the structural reforms necessary to increase public investment, lower public debt, and diversify its economy. A new Lebanese government also needs to pass measures that markedly improve transparency and root out corruption to gain the confidence of Lebanon's citizens and the international community. 
Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and Distinguished Committee Members, I believe U.S. foreign policy is most effective when there is close communication and collaboration between the executive and legislative branches. If confirmed, I look forward to and I can pledge close cooperation on these critical foreign policy issues. I thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today and look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. And finally, Dr. Wright. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and Distinguished Members of the Committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as the nominee for Ambassador to the United Republic of Tanzania. I'm deeply appreciative of the confidence that the President and the Secretary of State have placed in me by this nomination. Uh, at the outset of this hearing, I wanted to acknowledge family members that have played pivotal roles in my professional journey. First and foremost is my wife, Kathy Wright, who's been the source of an ending encouragement and support. I'd also like to acknowledge my parents, who I believe are watching from above, probably in total shock. Uh, <laughs> from them, I inherited a strong work ethic and a commitment to lifelong learning. Trained in the disciplines of family medicine, occupational medicine, and public health, I spent the first 17 years of my professional life as a practicing physician in Central Texas. In 2003, I moved to Washington to serve as director of the Office of Occupational Medicine at OSHA in the Department of Labor. This relocation began my 16 years as a career civil servant, a career devoted to improving the health and safety of the American people. With a personal passion for prevention, it has been a privilege to lead the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion for almost eight years. Over 30 years ago, very much at the dawn of my medical career, I landed in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania to serve as a voluntary physician at a public hospital in Zanzibar. Alongside a British physician, I treated children with malnutrition, malaria, parasites, and tuberculosis. During that memorable summer, I developed a deep admiration for the Tanzanian people. They were warm, generous, and treated strangers like family. If confirmed, it would be an honor to come full circle and serve in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania three decades later as the United States Ambassador. The United States has a longstanding commitment to Tanzania's development as a stable, reliable, uh, democratic partner capable of growing its economy sufficiently to support the health, education, and ambitions of its people, uh, while also becoming a market for U.S. exports and investment. Tanzania provides vital stability in the region and contributes to peacekeeping in Central Africa, Sudan, and South Sudan. If confirmed, I will focus broadly on three priorities, people, health, and trade. As a medical doctor, my career has focused on the lives of people. My first priority will likewise focus on the lives of people, American and Tanzanian, ensuring the safety and security of embassy staff and the American expatriate community will be a top priority. For the Tanzanian citizens, continuing deterioration of democratic norms has restricted their personal liberties, including free association and freedom of assembly. I am committed to working with the host government, like-minded missions, civil society, and international organizations to address this trend. Furthermore, Tanzania's national elections will be held in October 2020. If confirmed, I look forward to continuing the work of our embassy to encourage a fair, free, transparent, and inclusive election. Lastly, I will work with the host government to improve the prevention and prosecution of human trafficking. 
Almost 80% of the development assistance provided by the American taxpayer to Tanzania is directed to improving the health of the Tanzanian people. Efforts to reduce the burden of HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis are bearing fruit. If confirmed, I'm committed to leveraging American investments to produce continued improvements in health outcomes. Utilizing the expertise of the global health security agenda, which includes U.S. government agencies, international partners, and private stakeholders, we will continue to train the uh, Tanzanians in the prevention, detection, and response to de deadly viruses that are endemic to the region, such as Ebola. The current challenging business environment has impeded U.S. business investment, yet Tanzania has been one of Africa's fastest growing economies. If confirmed, I look forward to expanding America's, American business uh, opportunities in Tanzania and to improving the overall investment client. It's difficult to imagine a greater honor than returning to Tanzania as the U.S. ambassador. If confirmed, my preeminent goal will be to strengthen this important bilateral relationship. I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today and look forward to answering your questions. Okay, thank you. Senator Cardin. Again, let me thank all four of you for your presence here today and your, your testimony. Um, I'm going to start uh, with Mr. Chapman. We had a chance to ch chat. I, I really want to compliment um, the manner in which um, you were here once before as ambassador to Ecuador, and we had a conversation then. You made certain commitments, and you carried out those commitments, which I find not only um, important, but uh, uh, gives me an indication of, about your sincerity to work with the members of Congress. Thank you, sir. In regards to Brazil, there are many challenges. It's a very important country. It's a large country. It's very important in its region as well as globally. And I find the trends to be extremely concerning in that country under its current leadership. When the president calls the protests in Chile, Colombia, and beyond terrorist acts, he's referring to what's happening in his own country as far as lawful protests in an effort that he has to change the democratic principles of Brazil by stacking the deck in favor of the current government. Human rights in that country is moving in the wrong direction. How do you intend to use America's presence in Brazil to strengthen its commitment to human rights and protecting the population? Yeah, thank you, Senator Cardin, and thank you for recalling our previous conversations. Uh, and I appreciate the chance to call upon you in your office as well. Human rights is a fundamental element of American foreign policy. And when, Senator, when President Trump and President Bolsonaro met as part of their joint statement, they made a commitment to democratic values. And I think that's uh, one of the priorities that we must advocate for, is to promote US human rights uh, principles and values when we're abroad as representing our country. Brazil has a rich history. It has perhaps different views on different subjects, but the important thing is that we have a very constructive engagement on human rights. They're supporting our positions, whether it comes to religious freedom or combating the trafficking in persons involving Venezuelan refugees. So we have opportunities and we have challenges. Now, when addressing these challenges, it's important that we have frank, constructive dialogues with countries with which we may have discrepancies. And as I committed before I went to Ecuador, I commit to you again, sir, I will have those frank discussions with our counterparts, and I look forward to that. 
I appreciate that, and I hope that our mission will be a haven for those that are seeking a voice in regards to human rights. Absolutely. It's important that the U.S. Embassy represents those values, and I commit to speaking with a broad range of civil society within the country. And fortunately, Brazil does have very strong institutions, whether it's the free press, a strong judiciary, strong civil society. With them, we can dialogue and work together on these issues. The other major change we've seen in the country under its new president is its lack of commitment to the environment. Since um, August of 2018, Brazil has lost area in the rainforest equivalent to 12 times the size of New York City. Uh, this, when we try to engage, we get a, a really, I think, arrogant response. Uh, we recognize that Brazil is responsible for the control of its own territory, but the rainforest is a universal uh, treasure. How can we leverage the U.S. involvement and the, with our global partners to protect that valuable resource that not only track uh, that captures carbon, but also provides biodiversity, which is critically important to our, to our yeah. world security. Yes, sir. I'm very aware that the recent fires in the Amazon attracted a lot of attention. These are annual occurrences. Uh, when I lived in Brasilia before, I remember in this, this certain time period of August to October, you would see the smoke coming across the country. Uh, however, I think we have a constructive engagement plan that we're executing with the Brazilians right now. First of all, in response to the wildfires, we sent six experts from our U.S. Forest Service to go down and assist. We saw above average fires in August, but actually below average uh, amount of fires in the subsequent two months. The current administration in Brazil committed 9,500 extra personnel in September to help combat the fires. That was a robust response, resulting in a slightly below average amount of wildfires this year compared with earlier years. So I think the important thing, sir, is, is constructive engagement. And we have an $80 million program with USAID over the next eight years on conservation. And we also have an innovative uh, social impact fund, a $100 million fund that we just signed with the government that I think will provide opportunities for responsible development in the Amazon. I appreciate a response. I would just urge us to use, if, if constructive engagement works, fine. If not, let's look at stronger ways to make sure that progress is made to preserve uh, the Amazon. Um, Mr. Hennessy Nolan, um, I'm going to, you came from Australia, as I understand. Correct, sir. So uh, I'll excuse you for your reference to your son's support for the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, they're playing an important game at Raven Stadium uh, next weekend, and I I won't ask who you're rooting for, but uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your service. I, I want to talk a little bit about human rights. Uh, I, I am concerned that, that we find in, in Pali uh, a, a major concern for women. Approximately 35% of the women experience physical or sexual violence, or both, since the age of 15. Uh, the report also noted that there are no shelter victims for rape or domestic violence victims. So. I do think that the United States, which enjoys a very close relationship with, with Pali, that we should be able to leverage that to advance the protection of its population, particularly women. So 
how do you intend to use our mission to try to advance those goals? Thank you, Senator. You raise a very important issue. I think there's no higher priority than the protection of women and children and the vulnerable. Um, as you know, there are challenges in Palau. It is a tier two country in terms of trafficking in persons. Uh, it is a transit point in the Western Pacific, um, but it has been a priority of the administration and the U.S. Embassy in Koror to focus on these challenges. And so the U.S. government has a number of programs in place to improve the human rights conditions in Palau. As you said, sir, we have specific and a unique relationship with Palau under the compact arrangements. And I certainly pledge to you, uh, Senator, if confirmed, as ambassador, this will be one of my top priorities. And I just make the final note on this, that as we look at beyond 2024 and the compact, I hope that this will be one of the areas that we will concentrate on expecting to see additional progress made protecting women and human rights issues on the island. Senator, I appreciate that point. And as the Secretary of State mentioned in August in his historic visit to Micronesia, he noted that we are just at the beginning part of those discussions on that next part of the compact arrangement, and this certainly will be a key element of those discussions. Thank you. I'll, I'll get to the other two uh, on the second round. Don't think I ignored you. <laughs> Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the uh, nominees here today for your service and willingness to con continue to serve the country. Uh, Mr. Hennessy Nyland, just to continue the conversation you had uh, with some of the presidents, could you broadly, briefly speak about the importance of Palau, Pacific Islands, more generally uh, to U.S. interests? Senator Gardner, thank you for your question. I'd be happy to. And also, I'd like to, to thank you for taking the time this morning to discuss with me your very, very strong and sincere interest uh, in the Pacific. Um, I have served in the Pacific on a number of occasions in a number of different roles. Earlier in my career as the chief of the small political economic section in Suva, Fiji, which is a regional post for the Department of State. Later I was a military advisor with the Marine Corps forces in the Pacific headquartered in Hawaii and we traveled across the Pacific. And most recently I've served as the political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Canberra, which is a platform for projecting U.S. influence and U.S. interests and U.S. ideals across the Pacific. Palau is strategic. The map doesn't change. Palau was a key strategic battle in 1944, the Battle of Peleliu. And the geography remains the same. It is a bastion, um, a stronghold of, of American ideals um, and American values. It has a unique relationship with the United States. As the chairman noted, unfortunately, it has been a victim of bullying from the PRC in terms of the turning off the spigot of tourism from the mainland China. Fortunately, Palau is resolute, um, determined, and is, remains a strong supporter of U.S. relations with Israel. It is a key partner and recognizes Taiwan. And I will do my utmost, if confirmed as ambassador, to ensure that the strength of our relationship with Palau continues long into the future. The U.S. passed, this committee passed, uh, and, and the Congress approved the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. Uh, and in the appropriations bill that we'll be voting on later this week, uh, we appropriated about $2.5 billion for uh, implementation of ARIA as well as the Indo-Pacific strategy and related programs. What does that kind of a, a resource and program uh, authority mean for Palau and others in the region? So, Governor, ARIA is extremely important. As Assistant Secretary David Stilwell testified before this committee, it is very, very complementary to the administration's national security strategy and to the Indo-Pacific strategy. And certainly, 
uh, now that there's funding um, in the pipeline for AYA, this administration, and certainly I have confirmed as ambassador, will want to work very closely with this committee to ensure that we use the full gamut of tools available under ARIA to assist with our foreign policy objectives in the Western Pacific. ARIA talks a lot about uh, U.S. interest, uh, particularly countering some of the activities of China and giving our allies in the region uh, reasons to join the U.S. economically, uh, national security's perspective. Uh, what do you see uh, from your perspective in Australia and uh, your experiences in other places? What do you see China, uh, their, their efforts in Palau and other places, what do you see them doing on a daily basis? What do you see uh, this uh, contested space uh, like? So it's a very good question. Um, and I would describe the Pacific as the front lines in this competition with the PRC. As you've said, sir, I've served there for a number of years in different positions and different parts of the Pacific, but the challenge is the same. The, I think the template, the game plan for the PRC remains the same. We see it in Australia even, a strong democracy, a Five Eyes partner, a treaty ally of the United States. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us as representatives of this great country to push back to compete and to confront when necessary and to call out publicly when appropriate malign and malicious activities of the PRC. Unfortunately, from my perspective, sir, I see that taking place across the Pacific. And it is our duty and an obligation, I think, as representatives of this great country to call out such misbehavior and to support an international rules-based, norms-based order. Uh, the Senate passed the Taipei Act, which is designed to help uh, create a, uh, a more strategic approach the U.S. Uh, has around the world as it relates to Taiwan. Uh, and uh, those, uh, those countries with relations uh, to Taiwan, the diplomatic relations, recognition of Taiwan. Um, what, what does the Taipei Act mean uh, to Taipei? Uh, what does, excuse me, Taipei Act mean to Palau? Um, how can we continue this effort? Uh, Palau has a strong relationship with Taiwan. You want to talk about that a little bit more? Certainly, sir. And, and as we discussed this morning, uh, if the Taipei Act becomes law, I think it would be a very important contribution to supporting allies such as Palau, which has recognized and remains a, one of the countries that continues to recognize Taiwan. Taiwan is an important partner of the United States in the Pacific. And as we discussed this morning, uh, sometimes an underutilized ally in the Pacific. And I think we can do more with Taiwan to assist Pacific island nations such as Palau. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, good morning. Thank you all for being willing to consider the nominations to these critical positions at this time in our history. Um, I appreciate your being here to answer our questions. I, I want to begin with you, Ms. Shea. Um, I, I want to bring to your attention the case of a U.S. citizen and New Hampshire resident, Amr Fakori. Um, he's a constituent of mine. I have, um, I know people and have myself frequented his small business in Dover, New Hampshire. So I appreciate his um, support in the Dover community. For no, those who are not familiar with this case, Mr. Fakori has been detained in Lebanon since September, and there is particular urgency now because he is very gravely ill with lymphoma and is in serious need of treatment. Um, the embassy in Beirut has been very um, engaged in advocating on Mr. Fakori's behalf but so far we've been unable to persuade the Lebanese government to grant his release on humanitarian grounds. Time is of the essence, and as um, a longtime supporter of the U.S.-Lebanon partnership, the last thing I would want to see is a situation that complicates our relationship with Lebanon because an American citizen who has been being detained there 
has died in Lebanese custody. So if confirmed, do you commit to working with the Lebanese government towards a humanitarian solution in this case and to keeping my office informed of his progress? Yes, Madam Senator. Uh, I'm familiar with the case. I'm aware that Ambassador Richard and others at the embassy team have been heavily engaged, uh, and I would commit myself, if confirmed, to maintain that level of commitment. I view there being no higher uh, calling than pr to protect U.S. citizens overseas when we are serving our country uh, in our embassies. And I'm concerned about Mr. Fakhouri's well-being, too. Uh, I would commit myself to calling uh, to make sure that he received the proper medical care while he is in detention and advocating strenuously for his release. Thank you very much. Um, obviously, the situation is challenging in Lebanon right now because of the unrest, and um, analysts suggest that it's reached a point of no return where its politicians have to regain the confidence of the people of Lebanon. Can you talk about what you could do as ambassador to help um, support um, stability in Lebanon and to help getting a resolution to some of the issues that the people of Lebanon have raised? Thank you for the question. I've been watching with great interest over the last two months as Lebanese people have taken to the streets, exercising their human rights, calling uh, very rigorously for the government to uh, embrace very serious, very st structured, systematic reforms. And the United States administration stands with the people of Lebanon as they demand their basic needs to be met by their government. Uh, if confirmed, uh, I would want to be, play a responsible role. Uh, the United States would want to be careful not to be seen as uh, interfering or intervening, but uh, playing a supportive role in respecting uh, the role of citizens to make these basic demands of their government. It really underscores for me, now that we have seen some acts of violence uh, really over the last three days, the urgency for the political leadership in Lebanon to listen to these demands and to act on them. It is very clear what needs to be done in terms of the kinds of reforms that people are demanding. And there is a very clear roadmap that was laid out in the CEDRA conference of 2018. And uh, I would try to uh, uh, work with the political leaders to uh, persuade them to embrace these very much needed reforms. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Chapman, gender violence is an urgent human rights issue that I think more and more we're becoming aware of around the world. And under the Bolsonaro administration, there have been allegations that um, his comments have increased um, misogynistic behavior and dialogue. And I wonder if you have any concerns about President Bolsonaro's commitment to democracy and human rights, particularly the rights of women. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. It's nice to, nice to see you, and thank you very much for that question. Okay. Gender-based violence is a problem not only in Brazil, but all throughout Latin America. I spent uh, three and a half years in Ecuador as ambassador, and while I was there as our mission team, we decided to select only one social issue to concentrate our efforts for our country team. And as a group, we chose gender-based violence because it touches on so many different aspects of a society. 
And so taking that knowledge and experience of working on gender-based violence issues in Ecuador, I hope to be able to replicate that in Brazil. There are many roots, many causes for gender-based violence. Sometimes it's women who feel trapped that they cannot economically support themselves if they were to get out of a difficult relationship. We sponsored a very successful women's entrepreneurship program in Ecuador and saw how beneficial that was for gender-based violence. So I would hope that in Brazil I would be able to take some of the lessons that I learned personally and my mission learned personally in Ecuador and you have somebody on your staff who was a part of that process, your Pearson fellow, wonderful to see her. And so it's, uh, it's an opportunity, I think, for us to expand our engagement in Brazil, look for new solutions. And the U.S. Uh, has a lot to offer here. I think constructive engagement, again, having frank conversations, not being afraid to hold them, and then look for solutions that are practical, implementable, and that go beyond rhetoric is really the key to achieving demonstrable success. Thank you. Uh, another area that has been uh, controversial during the Bolsonaro administration has been his rather cavalier um, response to the fires in the Amazon and the environmental degradation that's resulted. Can you talk about to what extent you could work with the uh, Bolsonaro administration and what we can do as Americans and as people concerned about our global environment to support efforts in Brazil to um, protect the environment? Yes, clearly the environment is an important element of our U.S. agenda in the, in the country of Brazil. I'll repeat myself just a little bit from some earlier comments made that we do have a very constructive agenda right now with the Brazilians. We have a USAID program for $80 million over an eight-year period to promote conservation in the Amazon. We have a $100 million social impact fund that was just launched with this government uh, that we're very hopeful the private sector is going to be able to find sustainable ways to develop the Amazon. We're good at this. We know how to do this. And I think that by engaging the Bolsonaro government, we can provide some alternatives. But again, it's important that we have that constructive dialogue, that it be one that they believe that we're on the same side, we all want the same thing, we want to see the Amazon prosper for generations, and I think the U.S. has a role to play. Thank you. I agree. Several years ago, um, actually when I was governor, we had a group of Brazilians come up, um, sponsored by the agency for um, one of our federal agencies, mm -hmm. and we were connecting them with people who were working on water and sewage treatment Thank initiatives, you. small businesses, and it was a very successful um, pairing, and it's the kind of thing that we want to encourage and try and do more of. So thank you for your response. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to the nominees. You all have uh, impressive public service backgrounds. And Ms. Shea, you give hope to Pearson fellows everywhere like this one. <laughs> he, he may amount to something one day. I'm, the Pearson Fellow Program has been magnificent. J.C. Jane is my Pearson Fellow right now, and, and they have served the members and the committee so well. So I, I, I missed some of the Q&A because of an armed services hearing, but I, I want to start with you, Ms. Shea, on Lebanon. Um, there's been controversy recently uh, about the U.S. relationship with the Lebanese Armed Forces. Um, just because there was a hold on funds that has since been released. But share your perspective on the importance of the U.S. 
uh, LAF relationship. And if there are issues where we want to encourage them to do better, how can we and what would your approach be to that? Thank you for the question, Mr. Senator. The United States has invested a lot in the Lebanese Armed Forces, trying to build up its capacity and its professionalism over the last 13 plus years. And as a result of this investment, we see now that the Lebanese Armed Forces are securing uh, Lebanon's border with Syria, whereas in the past there were deadly incursions from ISIS fighters. Uh, they have worked uh, with us and under our mentorship uh, on a military-to-military -military basis. And uh, we're very pleased with the, the investment that we are making. And we see further potential for development in the professionaliz professionalization of the Army. Uh, I would also want to credit the Lebanese Armed Forces for playing a largely responsible role as these protests have gone on for the last two months, actually cordoning off uh, peaceful protesters and protecting them from armed thugs who came out to harass and intimidate and, and perpetrate acts of violence against them on behalf of Hezbollah or Amal. So this is very much in keeping with the kind of doctrine that our military uh, officers have been imparting to them. Can I ask your perspective as someone who's spent a lot of time in the region, if we look at protests in Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran, are there underlying similarities, or are they so country-specific that you can't generalize about the similarities in these protests? Well, Mr. Senator, uh, there, is, um, there are probably some common threads. Uh, I myself uh, feel a little bit limited in, in my ability to uh, extend analogies beyond my immediate purview here, but I know my colleague, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary Joey Hood, address this uh, committee on December 4th, looking at just this very phenomenon of protests. Uh, what I would offer is that uh, I, I believe it represents an opportunity for, uh, as my colleague on the panel was saying, constructive U.S. engagement. Uh, how these citizens of these countries um, present their demands to their elected governments how they advocate for the reforms that they want to see and the services that they rightfully deserve as citizens is really their call. But we can support their exercise of their basic human rights in doing so and call out others who uh, malign them, mm -hmm. who attack them violently, and we can call for their protection. Uh, Mr. Hennessy Nyland, I've not been to Palau, but it is a small nation spread over hundreds of islands and it's very vulnerable to climate issues. Um, talk a little bit about what, you know, what work you've done in the past that might deal with environmental threats and then how you would bring that to bear in trying to uh, assist uh, Palau from the United States perspective should you be confirmed. Thank you, Senator Kane, and it is an important issue. I've had the good fortune of visiting Palau once before, um, but I've had extensive service in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. I, we, we addressed environmental concerns years ago when I was the political economic chief in Suva, Fiji. Uh, it was also actually a, a matter of concern for the U.S. military when I was the foreign policy advisor with the Marine Corps forces in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. um, because for Pacific Island states, this is a serious concern. Um, and the U.S. government recognizes that climate change and environmental degradation are serious concerns, in particular for small Pacific Island nations. These issues were highlighted most recently at the Pacific Islands Forum Summit just a few months ago in Tuvalu. 
It is something that in my current position as the political counselor and acting deputy chief of mission in Australia, we talk to the Australian government a lot because Australia is a key partner of the United States addressing environmental challenges in the Pacific. And the US has sought to support a balanced approach to addressing these concerns, to protect the environment on the one hand and to promote economic development on the other. And both are essential for prosperity and security and stability of these small Pacific economies. Right. We, need, we needn't pitch them as being a choice, one against No, they're both. The other. We, both I, unnecessary truths. I, I remember uh, having Secretary Perry before us in the Armed Services Committee to talk about the work that the DOE does on the nation's nuclear reactors, and we were talking about its experiences uh, as governor of Texas and the work that they did on alternative energy, wind and solar in Texas, was great for the environment, and it was tremendously impactful in a good way on the Texas economy. So. We, we can hit the balance where we're achieving both goals. I completely agree, sir. Mm -hmm. Do, uh, Dr. Wright, I want to ask you, uh, my son was deployed in Tanzania uh, as part of uh, AFRICOM uh, as a Marine, and we do an awful lot of mill-to-mill -mill cooperation with nations, including Tanzania. Talk a little bit about the importance of mill-to-mill -mill relations with the country and how you would work to uh, continue to have the U.S. be a good security partner of choice for the government of Tanzania. Uh, thank you, Senator, for that uh, important question. It is true that the security concerns are one of the bright spots in our bilateral relationship with Tanzania. There are multiple examples of where we've worked very effectively with the coast government. In the area of peacekeeping and uh, UN's, UN peacekeeping forces, there's been a great deal of success. Certainly maritime security is another area that there has been uh, good success between the two countries. Uh, and then in the area of wildlife conservation, uh, something that is very important, certainly the park systems within Tanzania and the animals that inhabit them is one of the crown jewels of Tanzania and they need to be protected. Uh, there have been some uh, transnational criminal elements that have used poaching as a means to raise funds for their activities. And I'm very proud of the work that the U.S. government has done in training those anti-trafficking uh, individuals. Uh, they worked very closely with the Tanzanian Wildlife Management Agency and provided them skills that they need to be effective from airland reconnaissance to patrolling uh, to weapons, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a very strong uh, uh, security uh, bilateral relationship between the two countries, and I will continue to uh, pursue that uh, if I'm confirmed. Excellent. Thank you. And just uh, lastly, um, Ambassador Chapman, I'm not going to repeat the question that Senator Shaheen asked about the Amazon. I think many of us are very concerned about that. Um, the And it, it is, is tied a little bit to us, um, the trade issues that are leading to the complete drop-off of soybean exports from the United States into China has led China to look for other markets, and some of the deforestation in the Amazon is being done to clear, to grow soybeans as China looks to Brazil as a soybean uh, exporter. Uh, so I, you, you've already sort of answered the question, but I just want to encourage you to focus significantly on that issue should you be confirmed. Will do, Senator. Thank Great. you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Um, let me just start with Brazil. I just wanted to not sure there's anything you can do about it but in the short term, but I wanted to bring an issue to your attention. Um, back in October of this year, the ranking member of this full committee, Senator Menendez, and I sent a letter to the Treasury, and it was in regards to a, a Brazilian-based company conglomerate by the name of JBS, uh, and um, they've become increasingly active in the American food sector. In fact, they're the world's largest meat processing company. They have major holdings across the country. They um, they bought, uh, they purchased the beef and pork processing company Swift Food, 
then uh, they acquired the beef processing operations of Smithfield Foods. In 2009, they obtained the majority of the poultry processing operations of Pilgrim Pride, and they purchased Cargill's pork processing operations in 2015. But here's the problem. Uh, JBS has, uh, which has been increasingly involved in the U.S. market, has been implicated in a wide range of illicit activities in Brazil. Uh, the company, JNF Investimentos, which owns 40% of JBS, in fact, reached a settlement. They paid $3.2 billion in fines for its role in a bribery scandal in Brazil. Uh, ahead of that settlement, the owners of that company, uh, Josley and Wesley Batista, who happened to be the sons of the founder of JBS, admitted to bribing more than 1,800 Brazilian politicians in the amount totaling more than $150 million in order to illicitly acquire loans and financing from the Brazilian Development Bank. The problem is that those loans and that financing, of this ill-gotten financing that it received, which totaled more than $1.3 billion, they used it to acquire these American companies that I just outlined. And uh, in fact, uh, there's been reports that the Justice Department's opened an investigation into this company for potential violations of foreign corrupt practices. But that underscores our concerns, but, but it also points to the fact that this company has conducted business with a number of dubious partners, which include the, the so-called Venezuelan Corporation of Foreign Trade, which is identified by FinCEN uh, in September of 2017 in public corruption. And we've seen the investigative reporting that's documented how the Batista brothers' personal relationship with a drug lord by the name of uh, Diosdado Cabello uh, in Venezuela also raises these concerns. So I only raise it because this is an issue that, that I hope will come to a head and that we're focused with, and I'm more than imagine that the issue would be raised in our embassy. I, I did like. I think there's a lot of awareness in Brazil about the tri-border area, uh, the the area that links Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil has become a safe haven for organized crime and for terrorist groups. That includes Hezbollah. Uh, but the other concern that we talked about a little bit was not that Brazil is a source country for terrorism because it wouldn't be necessarily, but that it would be a transit point for people seeking entry into the United States via uh, Brazil, perhaps purchasing uh, false travel documents and the like. What, what can we do to be good partners in that regard? How can we further our work with the Brazilian government on that, on that potential counterterrorism threat? Yes, yeah, Senator Rubio, uh, on the first question of JBS, I'm aware of your letter. And this is something that our government and the Brazilian government share an interest in, is rooting out corruption, rooting out private companies that are bribing officials. Uh, so I do not know exactly where this particular issue stands, but if confirmed, I'll be following up the Department of Treasury and Department of Justice to understand where that particular case might be. On the tri-border area, an area that has long been a bastion for organized crime and, and ill-doing. Uh, fortunately, in recent months, we have been able to increase our cooperation with Brazil and with Argentina and Paraguay to look together at how U.S. law enforcement can, can increase our, our cooperation and come up with more lasting solutions. Uh, Hezbollah has not yet been designated as a terrorist organization by the government of Brazil. They have passed legislation that might permit them to do so and are working now on implementing regulations. Of course, Argentina and Paraguay have already done so, so this will be a point of follow-up. But I do see that law enforcement cooperation, which is already extremely good, is an area where we can expand in the coming months and years. Thank you. 
Mr. Hennessy Nealon, I, I too, I'm not asking you to do anything about it, but I too need the Steelers to lose that game because, <laughs> because the Dolphins hold their first round pick next year, and the worse the Steelers do, the better the pick is. Nothing, I'm not saying it's any way linked to your nomination. I'm just saying <laughs> that, that uh, you can put in a good word, that would be no. So anyway, um, on Palau, uh, the, China's been obviously putting a lot of pressure. Uh, we saw the, the tourism package ban that they had. We, we've seen their offers to supplement and or replace U.S. assistance and so forth. And we've seen it play to some results in places like the Solomon Islands and Kiribati, which broke off ties with Taiwan. But the, the, big, the Taiwan issue is a concern. The, the broader concern is, is obviously the, um, the presence in that region for geopolitical purposes and, and to leverage out the United States' ability to be present. In the, in the Pacific, in the Western Pacific region. And, and a particular concern now with Palau is that there are these reports of these high-profile politicians who also happen to be involved in a hotel project with Chinese partners, um, who are reportedly now becoming advocates for switching recognition from Taiwan to China. So we go to these countries and we say, you shouldn't do this because, what is the because? Number one, what is the argument? Why is it not in their interest? They're, they're gonna argue we need investment. They, they provide all this money. Uh, that would make us look good, but also would help our economies. And, and they argue you have nothing comparable to replace it with. So, so what is the argument that we make to governments like this, particularly if confirmed that you would make, as to why sort of not just switching recognition, but accepting this Chinese largesse is bad for the long-term uh, security and well-being of Palau? Thank you, Chairman Rubio. I very much appreciate the question. It, it is the issue that we focus on every single day across the Pacific. Um, there's a nexus of issues in that question. One is corruption, and unfortunately, corruption is rife across these vulnerable small economies and governments, and governance is an issue that the United States prioritizes in our discussions and our negotiations with the Pacific Island nations. It is a key part of the compact arrangements with our three territories, trust territories in the Pacific. I think people focus sometimes on the opportunities associated with these Chinese largesse. Um, I think part of our job is to point out some of the risks associated with those same so-called lucrative investments. The Chinese game plan has been to, to push wherever they can. I think we have to be responsive, present, and committed to pushing back when appropriate. I think there's no equivalence between the PRC and the United States. What the US and its like-minded partners across the Pacific offer is not um, corruption or bribery. What we offer is a sustained commitment to these island nations, working with them productively, constructively, to ensure that they have democratic systems in place that benefit their people. It is a daily struggle. Fortunately, in the case of Palau, Palau has been resolute in maintaining its support for Taiwan. It's been resolute in supporting US objectives and relations with Israel. And it's not to say that there are certain politicians and certain business people who would like to flip that arrangement. And if confirmed as ambassador to Palau, it would be my daily duty to do my very best to ensure that we have the closest possible relationship with Palau and its people. And Dr. Wright, I have a similar question about Tanzania. They have longstanding political trade and military ties with China, but we know that as China continues to try to expand its reach in Africa as well, it oftentimes comes at the expense of our relationship. But what is our counter-argument to those efforts as they seek to both gain 
unfair uh, access to natural resources and economic ties and military ties, what is the argument we make to nations about the danger involved in accepting that largesse? Thank you, uh, Senator, for that very important question, not only for Tanzania, but for the entire African uh, continent. Uh, let me say that the Chinese have a long vested interest in Tanzania going back to the 1970s when they actually built the railroad from uh, Dar es Salaam into Zambia, and they've had ongoing interactions with the Tanzanian government since that period of time. I'd also like to point out that there is a very lopsided trade imbalance between the United between China and Tanzania. Uh, the United States is much more on equal footing as it relates to reciprocal trade. Uh, to your question of what our strategy should be do, uh, moving forward, well, I think first and foremost, as ambassador and as an embassy, there needs to be transparency. We need to point out that sometimes short-term gain is not worth long-term indebtedness. Uh, in addition to that, I think we need to call out some of the uh, <clears throat> poor quality of projects that have been uh, seen across the globe as that have been financed uh, by the Chinese uh, and uh, in addition point out that very frequently those projects don't conform with environmental standards, do not inform, uh, conform with labor standards, etc. But I, that in and of itself I don't think is enough. We need to talk about alternatives. <clears throat> and certainly funding through OPIC and its uh, successor organization I think is one thing that we can point to moving forward that gives an option to a government that's looking for a major infrastructure project. And then lastly, I'd have to say that I think it's very important for us to utilize the allies in the region that we have worked uh, over decades to uh, develop to uh, address this particular concern. And finally, Ms. Shea, the, the issue, Lebanon's really a complicated situation. I think there's been a lot of focus today on the protests, and that's obviously relevant to everything that's going on. But, but beyond it, before the protests and for a long time, there's the complication there that you have a nation state, and embedded within that nation state is a group in Hezbollah, which, by the way, has killed more Americans than any terror group in the world except al-Qaeda. And they are both part of the government system, and then they also operate as semi-autonomous from the government in areas that they control. And then there's always the fear that, the one hand, the way to counter that is to strengthen the Lebanese armed forces and Lebanese government. The flip side of it is there's a the concern that whatever it is we provide them could one day wind up in the hands of Hezbollah and some of the, the loyalties that may exist between members of the Lebanese armed forces uh, towards Hezbollah. And then adding to all that complexity is, is the real possibility that at some point, uh, because of Hezbollah's increasing capabilities, um, I, I think at some point, unfortunately, there's going to be another Israel-Hezbollah conflict. Uh, and we hope it's no time in the near future, but, but we can anticipate that day arriving. The Israeli response could potentially not just be against Hezbollah directly, but depending on how embedded they are in the broader government, other areas of Lebanon that are not traditionally associated with Hezbollah and thereby triggering a much, a much broader regional conflict, all of it, obviously, we're only a day away from that conflict on any given day of any week and any year uh, that could spiral quickly out of control. So um, all that to say, uh, you picked a, uh, uh, they've picked a heck of a place for you to go. And, uh, and how could you help us just unwrap some of the thinking involved in all this complexity and what the U.S. role is in that regard? Thank you for the multi-layered question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I would uh, uh, identify with uh, a bit of the paradigm that you held up as uh, holding up the Lebanese armed forces and other state institutions 
as a, a counterweight, uh, effectively, to Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah benefits when the state is weak, when its state institutions are weak. So this has been a long-standing enterprise of the United States government to try to build up the professionalism and the capacity of the Lebanese armed forces. Now, of course, Hezbollah tries to exert influence uh, in all areas of society. And you are absolutely right that they might try to portray themselves as a political party in one instance or a social services provider in another. But we make no mistake in identifying Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. And it's the same leadership that exercises control over the entirety of Hezbollah's operations. So we don't make any distinction between Hezbollah's roles, and we don't think others should either. And we welcome it when other countries also designate Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. If confirmed, I will do everything in my power to continue that trend. Um, I would like to speak to the Lebanese armed forces uh, in terms of their being recipients of U.S. military assistance. And I am pleased to report that they have an exemplary track record uh, in using military assistance exactly in the way that it has been intended as we have provided this assistance to them. Indeed, uh, they have uh, zero um, incidence of leakage in our very rigorous end-use monitoring of our uh, military assistance. So our overall strategy is to build up the capacity to exercise uh, checks and balances through rigorous end-use monitoring, maintain that mentorship, and also maintain that line of control that ultimately the Lebanese Armed Forces answers to the civilian leadership of the country. Thank you. Senator Cardin, the ranking member, had some follow-up. Let me just follow up with that, Ms. Shea. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much for coming in from Egypt uh, just to be, meet with us. Very nice of you to make that trip. We appreciate it. Um, and uh, you've already heard from our colleagues on the human rights issues within Lebanon, which is a, a major concern, and you and I had a chance to talk about it, and we'll be talking about how our mission can assist the, the rights of the people in that country. We've also talked about the economic balance here, the reforms that are necessary in Lebanon in order to be able to get the type of economic assistance it needs for its economy to grow versus the unrest it could cause in regards to how those economic uh, reforms are implemented. That's something, again, that our mission needs to be actively engaged in order to deal with. But I, I want to just ask one question, follow up on the chairman's question. And there's a difference between leakage from the Lebanese armed forces to terrorist organizations, and another thing as to how the Lebanese armed forces respond to security challenges within Lebanon and whether there's infiltration from Iran or Hezbollah in regards to how the armed forces are used. I understand your confidence in the, our helping the capacity building of the Lebanese armed forces, but I just want to express our concern with a, a country that has not a strong central government as the impact that the local Hezbollah could have encouraged by outside influences such as Iran or coming through Syria. So your response to that. Thank you, uh, Mr. Senator and ranking uh, member. And I also want to thank you for taking the time to meet with me to discuss these issues. Uh, you raise a very valid concern. And uh, in identifying myself with this um, uh, project, 
of working so consistently over the past decade and more to help professionalize the Lebanese Armed Forces. I am in no way suggesting that uh, they be given a free pass or that that uh, continuous review not uh, always take place to make sure that our assistance is um, bringing about the desired uh, end state uh, that we intend for it to do. Uh, now, one thing that we can look at is uh, how the Lebanese Armed Forces have acted just in the past two months. I think we might look at this as a bit of a test case, and uh, on their own volition, they came out and they protected those peaceful protesters. Uh, so I think that was quite admirable of them, and it could have been much more um, injurious to the protesters had they not been there to play that role. I think we need to be mindful and uh, be skeptical. A, a proper amount of skepticism is warranted to make sure that our assistance continues to be um, used appropriately, uh, not just over the short term, but of the long term. And I believe that we have the kind of partners in the Lebanese Armed Forces that we can count on, but we will maintain that relationship to keep it under constant review. Thank you. I just be careful, because uh, the track record of the country, particularly of outside influence, is just um, very disappointing. It's a beautiful country. It's got wealth, but its wealth has been taken away as a result of the infiltration and Hezbollah. Dr. Wright, uh, your medical background, you're going to the right country. Tanzania uh, ranks one of the highest HIV AIDS, one of the highest in uh, mosquito-transmitted diseases, including malaria. They have not built up the capacity that some other, many other African countries have built up. How can our mission be helpful to deal, the, to build the type of resiliency in Tanzania to deal with their health issues? Uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. You're absolutely right. Uh, health issues are front and center within Tanzania, and we have over a decade of assistance to Tanzania and the Tanzanian people trying to improve their health outcomes. Uh, and there are some positive uh, uh, bright spots in this process. Uh, through the PEPFAR program, uh, a large number of the uh, Tanzanian people know their HIV status, and we now have 1.1 million people on antiretroviral therapy. Granted, there's more work to be done. There are a number of Tanzanians that don't know their HIV status, and we need to press uh, for more uh, <clears throat> testing across the country. Uh, in the area of malaria, again, through the President's Malaria Initiative, I think there have been some uh, there has been progress made over a 10-year decade, a 10-year period of time. The prevalence rate within Tanzania of malaria has dropped uh, 10%. So we're making progress. That said, there's still 7 million cases of malaria in Tanzania each and every year. And we need to focus on the prevention side of the equation, and that's what we have been doing. Insecticide impregnated uh, bed nets, uh, indoor spraying, and then I think also focusing on vulnerable populations, in particular pregnant women. We know having uh, Malaria during pregnancy is both injurious to the mother as well as to the child. I think that there are efforts now to try with this foundation that the United States has built over the last decade to encourage the host government to begin to take more responsibility for the health of, uh, of their own people and continue the programs that we so uh, have uh, built a foundation for. Thank you. Um, in human rights, Tanzania has really got significant concern. Just recently, they've been 
um, uh, deregulating political parties. They did not have a free and fair election. There's another one coming up that is unlikely. The jury's out, but could very well not pass international standards for free and fair elections. Uh, the LGBT community is very much targeted and discriminated against. So how, if confirmed, will you be an advocate for the human rights of the people of Tanzania based upon international standards of human rights? Thank you, Senator Cardin. That's a very timely question. I think historically the United States has had a very strong bilateral relationship with Tanzania. Uh, that said, there is no question that there has been a narrowing of the demo uh, democratic norms in the country over the last seven year several years with a deterioration of basic human rights. Uh, something that needs to be addressed, that has been addressed by the embassy, and that certainly I'm committed to addressing uh, if I move forward. I think the uh, policy, the strategy of the embassy has been that we promote human rights for all Tanzanian citizens. However, that said, that we're, there's a f special focus on those vulnerable populations. And the vulnerable populations would include the LGBT community, it would include uh, journalists in the country, and it would include uh, political opposition uh, candidates. Uh, what would be my strategy to deal with uh, this issue if I was confirmed? Well, first and foremost, I'm committed to you of speaking uh, both publicly and privately with the host government about our concerns in this particular uh, area. You know, I think they need to be reminded that history tells us that it's the countries that uh, protect the human rights of their citizens that are the most uh, peaceful over the long term and the most prosperous over the long term. So it is certainly in their best interest to offer uh, basic human rights to their citizens. Uh, I don't think my voice is enough. Uh, certainly I will partner with like-minded missions within uh, Tanzania, those that share our views on human rights so that we can uh, speak with a united voice on this very, very important topic. Uh, in addition, uh, certainly there are large elements of civil society that need to be brought into the equation to continue the dialogue, uh, and if confirmed, I'm committed to doing that. And lastly, I will tell you, I think that the ambassador has the power of convening, and that's something that I will do often to make sure that the dialogue on human rights remains front and center. I, I very much appreciate that comprehensive answer, and one of which I is, to me, the right blueprint for our mission. And I, for all four of the nominees, you have partners in the United States Senate to advance American values of human rights, good governance, democracy, et cetera. Recognize that we want you to make progress if confirmed in the, each of your missions on these goals. And we are here to work with you and we would appreciate being kept informed and how we can be helpful by our actions. Sometimes it's resolutions that we pass, sometimes it's just our statements that we make on the floor of the Senate. But please let us know how we can partner with you to advance American values. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We want to thank, uh, is there anything else, Senator? Okay, well, thank all of you for being here. Thank your families for being here, particularly those, those that drove through the night. Uh, I don't have anybody in my family that would drive through the night for anything. Uh, so uh, uh, I think it's, it's great. But I want to thank all of you for being here. Uh, the, the record will remain open for 48 hours, and with that, this hearing is adjourned.